Well, again, good morning. Uh, my name's Aaron. So glad you guys are here this morning. So glad uh, that we could get together and open up God's Word and just look at some things together this morning from the book of Acts. Hey, if you're here again for your first time, welcome. We're so glad to have you worshiping with us this morning. And uh, we'd love to help you out in any way that we can. Uh, if you're here for the first time, when you came in, you got a bulletin and it's got in it uh, a response card. We would love if you would fill that out. And on your way out, if you would drop it in the basket so that we could know you were here. And if there's anything we could do to help you out, or if you need to talk to us about something, we would love to be able to do that. So let us know. Uh, We're going to be in the book of Acts. If you've got a Bible, open up to Acts chapter 1. We've just started a series uh, working through the book of Acts. And if you don't have a Bible, you should be able to find one under the chair in front of you. So we would ask you to pick that up. And if you're using that Bible, we're going to be on page 909. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, take that one with you. Consider that our gift to you. We would love for you to have one and be able to read it and consider some of these things for yourself. We're going to get into some stuff today. I'm not going to have enough time to get through all of it. Um, We'll read it. We'll talk as much as we can, but I would love for you to go home, read this stuff on your own, consider it more deeply on your own. Uh, As we've been looking at the book of Acts, let me give you a little bit of context, catch you up to where we are. So the book of Acts is a book that's written by uh, one of the apostles, or excuse me, not one of the apostles, but by uh, one, of, one of the early members of the church whose name was Luke, and he was a historian, and he did a lot of research, and he interviewed a lot of people, and he sat down and he wrote out a really extensive biography of the life of Jesus, and we called that the book of Luke, because Luke wrote it, and then he wrote a sequel. And so this is part two, and this is the story not just of Jesus' life, but this is the story of the church and what happened to the church after Jesus left. And so what we've covered so far in the book of Acts is that part of Jesus leaving, of him going back to heaven. And and when he did that, and as he did that, he left his followers, his apostles, he left them with a mission. And the mission that he gave them was to take the message of who he was and what he had done, and to go and to spread that message throughout the entire world. And so that's kind of where we pick up in the book of Acts chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse number 12. So, so Jesus has given them this mission, and here's what happens. Then they return, this is verse 12, then they return to Jerusalem from the mount called Olive, Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip And Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men 
who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all show, which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them and the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. The word of the Lord. So, um, in some ways, this passage seems kind of like this, just a lot of information. This is story. This is kind of background context of moving us along. Jesus went back to heaven. The apostles are going to get started. They've got this mission. They're going to go out and spread the word of Jesus throughout the entire world. So, this is just kind of some information filling in along the way. But I think, and I want to spend some time looking at this this morning, because I believe there's actually something in here that could be very powerful to us as we consider what it looks like when we have to make a decision. So this is an episode in the lives of the apostles where they have to make a a pretty big decision. They have a, a choice to make here because there were 12 apostles, and one of them was a guy named Judas, and and in the course of events, Judas was the one who actually, he betrayed Jesus. He sold him out. He told the um the Pharisees and the Romans, where they could find Jesus and arrest him so that they could crucify him and and all that stuff. And so in the course of that, Judas, um, and and he got paid for that. And then what the scripture tells us that he took the money he got paid, he bought this field, and then he went out and was so overcome with what he had done that he actually committed suicide there in that field. And, And so he's gone now, and there are 11 apostles and so the apostles get together, and one of the first things they, they start to discuss after Jesus has gone up into heaven is he's given us this mission. And this mission he's given us is huge. He wants us, 11 people, to go and spread this, this story, this news, this message about him throughout the entire world. And we've got to have a good group to start with. We've got to build and establish sort of this core group of leaders that's going to spread this message, and and we need someone else to come in and take Judas's place. And so this is a big, huge decision, okay? And I, I want you to understand the importance and the weight of this decision, because as we look through this, and as we hopefully think about some decisions that we have in our own lives, and, and kind of the processes we go through when we're making choices and kind of the stress that we feel and what it looks like for us and how we navigate those choices. Here's what I, I often do when I approach a passage like this in the scripture. The choices I have to make and the decisions that I'm wrestling with to me are so huge and massive and important. And then I look at this and I'm like, My decisions are so much more important than any of these decisions. And so I look at how they went about making their choice or their decision. I'm like, okay, that worked for them. But if they were dealing with something like what I'm dealing with, they probably feel a lot more stressed. They'd probably approach it in a completely different way and things would be totally different. So just just to kind of set the stage here, I want us to all understand this was a big, big deal. Okay, a big deal. Jesus had told the apostles, I'm I'm giving this to you to spread my name and the message of, of my forgiveness and my salvation throughout the entire world. 
And now they're trying to decide who's going to come and help them with that huge, massively important mission. Okay? Big, big decision. So again, as we're thinking about the decisions we have to make, and we're looking at kind of this paradigm that they used to make decisions, here's, here's what I got to tell you this morning, okay? As somebody, personally, who kind of struggles at times with making choices, okay? I'm not going to say I'm like the most indecisive person in the world, but I will tell you that one of the most popular stories among my family when we get together and talk about things from our childhood is the time that the cashier at Fazoli's actually yelled at me, get the sampler platter, okay? I'm not the quickest guy to jump in, okay? I take my time. I work through things. I analyze things from every different angle. And in doing so, (laughs) I hope you're with me on this. I hope I'm not the only one who goes through this. Maybe the Fazoli's thing. But otherwise, (laughs) um, that can lead to incredible stress and incredible tension and incredible inaction. When I feel like I'm, I'm... being called or or being led or even just, I know I need to make a decision. I need to do something. And I hit this wall where it's like, but what do I do? And I have options and I have to pick one of the options. And it becomes in my mind and in my heart, such a big, huge thing. And so what I've done over the course of my adult life is I've spent so much time And so many resources of reading books and listening to to podcasts and sermons and talks on how to make good decisions. And and from both what what you might call like secular or non-Christian sources, what what do they say? Business, books, and resources, how do I make good decisions? And then sermons and and Christian authors and, and even looking in the Bible. And here's the thing, it's the same books But if it's by a business person, it's about how to make decisions. If it's by a Christian author, they call it how to know God's will. Okay, it's the same book. All right, it's all the same stuff. But I've read so many books and I've listened to so many talks and so many sermons. And so here's what I want to tell you this morning as we go through this. This is not going to be another one of those kind of talks and kind of sermons, okay? Um, Because... I looked at this passage and I looked at what the disciples did, what the apostles did here. And I think we could pull out kind of a process. They took some steps and they're good steps. They really are. But bottom line, I don't think most of us would want to make a decision the way that they made a decision. Look at this. Starting in verse 15, Peter stands up and he starts talking about the decision that has to be made. And he starts it by talking about what the scripture says. You see in verse 16, it says the scripture had to be fulfilled. Verses 20, or excuse me, verse 20 contains two quotes from scripture. And so so we could say the first thing the apostles did when they had to make a decision was they looked in the Bible and, and they viewed the decision they had to make through the lens of what does the Bible say about it. And that's a good thing. Okay, that's a really good first step to making a decision. So right there, very good. And then secondly, they have some wisdom. 
And we spent like this whole summer, if you were here at Trailhead over the summer, we spent the whole summer unpacking the book of Proverbs and all the wisdom that's contained in there and the importance that God places on using wisdom in our lives. And so in verse 21, they, they come up with some wise ideas about the criteria they're going to use to find this guy who's going to replace Judas. Wisdom is a good thing. Viewing through the lens of scripture, good thing. Wisdom, good thing. And then in verse 24, they prayed. They prayed to God and said, you, you who know the hearts of all show which one of us. And so they asked God to make the decision clear to them. Praying before you make a decision, a very, very good thing. And so one, two, three, all those steps, great steps, awesome way to make a choice. But then after doing all of that, they have two guys and they're only looking for one. So they've got this guy named Joseph, Joseph Barsabbas Justice. And I don't know why he goes by so many different names, but he has three different names. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. So you've got Joseph and Matthias. And it's like they fit all our criteria. They fit what the scripture says. And we've prayed about it. And we've still got two choices. Now what? And here's my question. Have you been there? Have you been there where you've gone through a whole process and you've gone through all this analyzing and you've thought and stressed and discussed and you've talked to other people who you think are wise and you've run the numbers a hundred different ways and you've looked it all over and then still at the end of all of that, you've still got multiple choices and you're still looking at it and weighing it and like, which one am I supposed to choose? And so here's what the apostles did. Verse 26, and they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. The ultimate way that they made their decision, they cast lots. Now that's kind of a, a biblical term, maybe casting lots. It's not something we necessarily do anymore. So let me explain a little bit. When, when they talk in the Bible about casting lots, it could mean a couple of different things, but it was in general, the same idea of they would take either like chips of wood or small stones and they would write on them, mark them in some way and put them into like a clay vessel and they'd shake it up and they'd either like pour them out or reach in and pull them out. And the one that came out they would say, okay, that's the one God wants us to have. So basically what they did was they put like two stones or two chips of wood or something. And one said Joseph and one said Matthias and they shook them up and they reached in and they pulled out Matthias's name. And that's how they picked the next apostle. That's how they made this hugely, massively important decision of who was going to help them take the message of Jesus and spread it around the entire world as they drew a name out of a hat, okay? They used, they used the same process I used to determine the draft order in my fantasy football league <laughs> to pick the next apostle. Is that really how you want to make choices in your life? I mean, do you really, that's so random, isn't it? Like they totally just trusted it to, to lock, didn't they? This is to me, this is like so absurd. How, how could these 11 guys 
who have spent the past three years following Jesus around and following him and listening to his teaching. And so they should have so much wisdom, so much knowledge, and they've been given this so terribly important mission. How could they trust a decision to something so random as casting lots? And, and, and is this something, honestly, honestly, okay? Because this is a story. And there's not like, God's not here giving us like direct instructions here. So is this even something that we should even be considering like, maybe I should do that? Or is this just a story? And we can look at this and say like, that was crazy. Let's just move on. Here, here's what I, I want to say this morning. To a certain degree, I believe that God actually does not want us to like cast lots literally. But to follow this type of decision-making and trust him with the results. Here, here's, here's why, okay? And this is what has hit me so much as I've been reading through this and studying this this, this week and just asking what is going on in this story. I think this is much less about what the apostles did as we look at this morning, this, this morning, I want us to see what it was that the apostles believed and what it was that the, the apostles believed that influenced what they did. But they only did this because they had a very, very strong foundational belief in something about God, a truth about God that allowed them, that I would even use the word freed them to make a decision in a way that might seem to us utterly absurd. And here's, here's what it is. And this is what I, I believe the apostles believe, and the rest of scripture will, will bear this out. And we're going to look at another passage to kind of flesh this out a little bit more. The apostles believed that God is absolutely sovereign sovereign. We don't use the word sovereign a lot, um, especially in America because we're a, a democracy. But the word sovereign simply means that God is completely and totally in control of everything. He is the ruler of everything. And not only is he in control like he's powerful, but he's also all-knowing so he's able to do whatever he wants and he knows exactly what the consequences of every action could be and will be. God is absolutely and totally in control of everything that happens. He's sovereign. Another way of saying it and, and just to make it more personal, God is the author of your story. Because God is the author of the whole story. God is writing a story. And it's a story that started in the book of Genesis and it extends throughout the entire Bible and on into today. And we're a part of that story. But God is the author of that story. 
He is the one who is in control of everything that happens and nothing that happens is outside of his control. Nothing that happens escapes his notice. Nothing that happens surprises him. Nothing happens that he doesn't have a hand in. He is completely and totally in control of our lives. That's a big, huge thought. A big, huge thought. But why, why is that a helpful thought? Because in some ways, in saying that, that could be a bad thing. God's completely in control of everything. Does that mean that I have zero control over my own life? Does that mean that I have, I mean, doesn't that mean in a way that my choices don't even matter? Why even make a decision then? Here's, here's what I hope we're going to see this morning. Because God is the author of our story, because God is the one who's completely and totally in control, and I believe the apostles believe that, and that's what freed them to make the decision they made in our lives if we believe that. And if we believe it in those difficult choices that we're trying to make, those tough circumstances we're trying to navigate, those hard relationships that we're not sure how to move forward with, those circumstances that seem overwhelming and weigh down on us so much. If in those things we believe that God is the author of our story, I believe it frees us. It frees us to trust him, to trust him with both, and we'll look at this later, but to, to, to trust him with both our past and our future. So let's examine this idea a little bit, and I think we'll start to see how this plays out. And, and in order to do this, I want to look at one of the most powerful teachings on this in Scripture. So this part is not necessarily story. This is direct teaching from the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. So if you would, if you still have your Bible open, if you turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, uh, if you have one of our Bibles, it's on page 944. As you're turning there, here's, here's something I want to say. I am not in any way, by what I'm saying this morning, trying to downplay the importance of our choices. The choices we make are real choices, and they have real consequences. Some of them have very, very serious consequences. Okay? We're not, we're not just puppets unable to think on our own. God is in control, but we also, and this is what the Bible teaches, and it's this balance, it's this tension, but we have to believe it because the Bible teaches both of these things to be true. God is completely in control, and we make real choices that have real consequences. And both of those things are true. But because God is completely in control, the real choices with real consequences that we make we can be free to follow and trust God as we make those choices. Let's look at this together. Romans chapter 8, and I want to start in verse number 28. This is a very famous scripture, but it's very often misunderstood. So let's make sure that, that we hear exactly what's being said here. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I want you to understand something here, okay? 
Let me, let me say some things this verse is not saying. Number one, it's not saying all things are good. Okay? And I think we know that. But let's make sure we're clear on that. Not everything that happens in your life is good. There are painful, painful things that happen. Not every choice you make on its own could you look at it and say that was the right choice. You will make choices in your life. I have made choices in my life that have had painful consequences. And that will happen again. Not everything in itself is good, and that's not what it's saying here. It says all things work together for the good, for good. And, and, and let me point out something else. It's not saying that all things eventually will turn out good, okay? And so this is a nuance here, but I want you to catch this. Not everything on its own will lead to a positive conclusion. Not every choice you make and not every path you go down is going to end up at a great place. Again, it's not saying that. Not everything is good and not everything ends up good. Here's what it is saying, that all things work together, together for good. Every event, every choice, everything that happens in your life is a part of one big story. The one big story is good. God is writing a beautiful story. And we are a part of it. But not every part of the beautiful story looks good on its own. And we won't necessarily, in this lifetime, even see how all those parts work together for good. Let me, let me illustrate. Somebody told me this several years back, and it just hit me. This was so powerful. If you've ever seen a tapestry, you know what a tapestry is? That artwork that's made out of thread and stuff like that. This is a tapestry. And so the picture on the right is what you would see if you look at a tapestry hanging on a wall. But the picture on the left is what you would see if you flipped that tapestry over and looked at the back. It's a mess. A mess of different threads all tied together in a jumbled bunch of, almost looks like a bunch of knots, and you can sort of vaguely, in this case, make out kind of a general impression it's a crown. But it looks nothing like the finished product, right? When an artist is making a tapestry, what they actually are spending time on is there on the back. And that's what you would see. If you were to go in and watch a tapestry being made, you'd see that back side. And if you just saw the back side and then walked away you would leave thinking, man, that was a mess. You're calling that a work of art? And this is such a perfect picture of the world we live in. Because God is a master artist who's weaving a beautiful tapestry throughout this entire world, but we right now are on the other side. And so what we can see at best most of the time, what we see are the few strands that we're involved in right now. At best, maybe we might get a glimpse at how some of those strands work together and a general impression of the big picture. 
But we will never, on this side of eternity, see the real true picture as God is weaving it. See, God's working all things together for our good. He's weaving all these strands together and he understands and he has a plan and he is the master artist of all of this. And he knows when he pulls these strands together exactly what it's doing on the other side. And he sees both sides, we don't. So I'm on my side, on this side of heaven, right now, looking at the world around me and and all the different strands and what I see are jumbled knots and a mess. And what Paul is calling me to understand here in the book of Romans is that what I see as a jumbled mess, God is working together for his good. Which is all great if I trust that that's true. But here's the big question. What is there to make me believe that's true? If I'm on this side, if I'm looking at the mess, why should I believe that there's another side? Why should I believe that this is all going to work out? Why should I believe if God's the author of everything and he's in control and it looks to me like, okay, God, you're in control. This is a mess. This is what your control looks like. What is there to make me believe that in the end of all of this, it's actually going to be something beautiful and something good? What is there to make me believe what Paul is saying in verse 28, that this is all going to work out for my good? How should I, why should I believe that this is actually, I mean, maybe God's in control. Maybe God's in control, but I'm out of luck. Maybe God's in control, but I'm just a forgotten afterthought. Maybe he's writing this beautiful story. I'm not even a minor character, or maybe I'm the villain. How am I supposed to believe that all of this is going to work together for good? I want to read more of what Paul says. 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For, because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then here's, I think, the turning point. He, talking about God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you see what Paul's saying here? Okay, God's in control of everything, but how do I know that's for my good? Okay, here's, here's a little bit of proof. Here's something you might want to consider. God loves you so much. He is so interested in your good that he sacrificed his own son for your benefit. And he did it not because you were awesome, He didn't send Jesus Christ to die because you're great. 
He did it for the exact opposite reason. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be crucified, to be murdered because of your sin. Because you're not good enough. Because of the mess of your life, the mess this whole world was in, but you personally, because of the mess you've made by your choices and their consequences, because of that, God in his love for you sent his son to die for you. If that's true, if that's true, if, if God sent his own son to die because of all the wrong choices, because of the actual, not just the bad choices, but because of your inability to make right choices, because of the brokenness inside of you, if God sent his son to die for you because of that, how can you not trust that he has your best interest in mind. He loves you so much that he would sacrifice a very part of himself, his own son, for you. <laughs> Paul says, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. God is the author of our story. And he's an author who's writing a story about his love for us. It's a story that is drenched in grace and mercy. God loves you. And he is weaving together the strands of your life, both the good and the bad. And there is bad. Okay, the message this morning is not that everything is good. The message this morning is that God takes the bad and he weaves it together and he's making something beautiful out of it. The story that God is writing is far, far better than any story you could ever write for yourself. See, because we have such a limited view of the world, of even of our own lives, we live so much within such a limited scope that if I were to decide what I think is best for me, it would be so, so far different from what God, who has unlimited scope, knows is best. The best thing I can do is to trust him, to truly believe that he's the author of the story and that that story he's writing is a good story. If we do this, I believe this has two major major implications for us. I mentioned this earlier. I think it has implications for both our future and for our past. And let me explain what I mean by that. First of all, 
in the decisions we're trying to make now. Decisions now that will, will impact our future going forward. Here's something we have to believe and have to understand based on what Paul is saying here, based on how we see God work throughout the book of Acts. We cannot mess up God's story. No choice you make can thwart God's plan. Yeah, but what, what if I choose wrong? Okay. <clears throat> You're going to choose wrong. You're going to mess up. You're going to make mistakes. Even in your best intention moments, you will fail. I will fail. You will feel pain. I will feel pain. And it will be as a consequence of my own choices at times. However, it's not going to throw God off. It's not going to derail his plans for this world or even for your life. God is writing your story. You're not wrenching the pen out of his hand and messing up the next chapter. The choices you make will ultimately lead to God's conclusion for your life. Follow wisdom. Follow the scriptures. Pray about the choices you have to make. But then boldly make a choice and trust that God is going to do what God is going to do. And walk confidently into the bold choices that you make. Do everything you can to, to follow what God asks you to do. Yes. But when you come to a juncture where it seems like you could get crippled by indecision, do I go this way or that way, and I can see positives and I can see negatives and I can't find, pray about it. Read the Bible. Talk to wise people you know. And then make a choice and move forward. You cannot stop God's plan. And then just as importantly, and I, I almost feel like sometimes even more importantly for me, is not just how this impacts your future, but how this impacts your past. I am, um, I'll just be honest, I can get wrapped up a lot in regrets because I am really fully aware of a lot of bad choices that I've made and the negative consequences that have followed. And I can dwell on those things. And I can start to ask myself, what if? And I can start to play what if games in my head where if I had only at this point in time, what if I had gone this way instead of that way? What if I had chosen this school instead of that school or this major instead of that major? What if, what if, when I completed school, what if I'd gone into this career instead of that career or taken even within my career this job instead of that job? And what if we'd moved here instead of there? And what if I bought this instead of that? And I can make those what ifs and spin out in my mind a story in my head of what my life could be looking like now if I hadn't made every other choice along the way. And I can even dwell on and pick one specific choice and make that like the hinge point of my entire life story. And if only that one thing, and if I could somehow travel back in time and change that. 
Is it possible? If this is true, if God is the author of my story, and even though I've made real choices that had real negative consequences along the way, is it possible that even my worst mistakes were a part of the story that God is writing? Is it possible that your worst mistake is a part of the story that God is writing in your life? Is it possible that what Paul is saying here is that the thing that you regret so much in your life is actually a strand in a tapestry that maybe in this life you'll never see the other side of, but God is weaving together into something beautiful. That even in the most destructive parts of your past, is it possible that God was there? Is it possible that even when you were at your worst, even when you did things that were blatantly against God, that he's using that in your story now? Is that possible? Is it, is it possible that instead of playing what if, instead of looking back with regret, is it possible that we could look back, that I could look back, and say, yeah, that was wrong, and not downplay it, not say, well, you know, I, I mean, I look back and say, wow, that was, that was sin. That was me making the worst possible choice in that moment, sometimes even knowingly making the worst possible choice in that moment. And yet, is it possible me, for me to look back and say, and yet God is using that now? And we'll continue to use that and weave that together with other things maybe that I don't even know. And maybe in ways, and look, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we need to look back and try to figure out how God is weaving these things together. I think sometimes that's, a, that's an exercise in futility. We can't see it. We are not God. Okay, I think sometimes Christians spend way, way too much time trying to figure out how God's using all the bad things in the world instead of just trusting that he is. I'm not God. That's a really good thing, actually. I'm not God. I'm never going to make all the right choices. I'm never going to be able to look back at my life and believe that I made all the right choices. But I want to believe from reading this that what I can do is look back and say that even at my worst, even in the worst choices I ever made, God was there and he's using those. And he will continue to use those along with every other choice that's being made throughout the world that God is pulling them together according to a plan, a plan that he devised a plan that he wrote way, way before the world even began 
that he came up with this whole plan and that everything that happens is under his control. Everything that happens is within his scope of vision and he's pulling all of this together. And so when the apostles reached into the pot and they pulled out Matthias' name, God wasn't in heaven going, oh, Matthias. Okay, so the Matthias plan, forget the Joseph plan. God knew. God didn't just know, he, he made it happen. And in my life, God knew. And he made it happen. And in your life, God knows, and he's the one who's in control. I'll put some questions up on the screen to reflect on. And only two this week, because I just want us to look in these two areas, future and past, and ask ourselves, if this is true, if this is true, if God is truly, completely, and totally in control of our lives, and not just our lives, but the entire world. If God is really in control of the entire world. And, and, and not only is he in control of the entire world, but he loves us. And he loves us so much that he would send his own son to die for our sins because of the sins we committed willfully. But he chose to love us and he chose to save us by the sacrifice of the greatest and most dear thing he had. If God loves us that much, then how does that impact these two things? Put the questions up on the screen. Number one, what decision is causing you the most stress right now? What choice, what, what relationship, what, I don't know, maybe it's a purchase, maybe it's a move, maybe it's a transition of some kind. Maybe it involves your children or your, or your spouse or your parents. Maybe it involves school for you your career, whatever it is that is that thing that it's, it's created this knot and you know it's up to you and you have to decide and that weight is pressing down on you. Here's the question. What would it look like to trust God's sovereignty in that decision? What would that look like for you? And then number two, in looking back, what is that great regret? That thing that hangs on you and and I don't feel like guilty, like I'm bringing it up because it's that thing that comes up all the time. That thing in your past that if you could, if I could, if I could go back, if I could change that. What would it look like for you to trust God as the author of that chapter of your life? To trust that God was there, that he was the one, even then, even at your worst, that God was the one writing your story. What would that mean for you? We're going to move into a time of reflection. I don't have a lot of like action steps today. Like I said, I don't have like a, you know, a five-step process for making choices. All I have, all I have to give you this morning is this truth about God. He's the author of our story. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you're good. You're so good to us in so many ways that we don't deserve. That when we were at our worst, 
That's when you sent your very best, your son, God, your own son, to die for us. You've solved our greatest problem through Jesus Christ. So God, what we're asking today is that you would open our hearts to trust you with the rest of our lives as well. The good and the bad, the past and the future, all of it that we would trust in you and in your control. So Heavenly Father, I know this messes with my heart. It makes me question so many things. And I'm sure that it's doing that to a lot of people in this room right now. God, my prayer is that you would keep pressing on us deeper and deeper and deeper to trust in your love and in your grace. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.